right, let's pray. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord. You are immortal, invisible, glorious in all of your perfections. The one and true God, as you have said, I am God. There is no other. Sovereign <clears throat> ruler of the universe, you look at the nations and you call them but a drop in the bucket and you view all the inhabitants of the earth like grasshoppers. What kind of God is there like you? And we have the privilege of being sons and daughters of the true God. And it is a privilege. And we thank you for the ministry that you have to us, to us especially in the Holy Spirit, whom we will concentrate on again this afternoon. May we go away rejoicing for that wonderful ministry of the Spirit in our lives. We ask in his glorious name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> We're in John chapter 16, <clears throat> and we need to get to John here. We're looking at the first uh, eight verses and basically concentrating on verse eight. I got down through to verse eight last week, and we're, we got to remember that when Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving soon from this world because his uh, arrest and crucifixion death was imminent, and they were saddened over this greatly. Jesus knew that, but he gave them the promise. He says, I will not leave you as an orphan. And I will send you a comforter, a helper. And when he comes, we're going to see he's going to teach you. And he will minister to you. And we looked at verse 8, talks about the, the specific nature of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because he says there in verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict or convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those are the three things that Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to do when he leaves. We saw last week he convinces men of sin, uh, exposing, we saw, of their, um, he exposes their uh, their sin, just like Jess taught this morning. Again, I told him, you know, I thought you were going to go uh, meddling on me today. Everything he says is somehow comes up in the e evening service. I, we don't plan this as if we sit down and, all right, how are we going to do this? It just, could it be the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, so the Spirit convinces us of our sin through the law. Just like what Jess was saying, enabling men to see that they are guilty. And then they see that because it is the Spirit that regenerates a person's heart, making it a heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And then... Uh, setting their will free, just like we talked about at lunch, that once the Spirit regenerates us, then uh, 
we have the ability or we have the desire then to follow Jesus. And, and so the Holy Spirit does this, this, this convicting of sin. He does, and I mentioned this last week and we dealt with it, through primarily the preaching of the gospel. And we saw that probably the most notable example of, of this was soon to happen when, at the day of Pentecost. 40 days after Jesus was raised, he was ascended. He told them to go to Jerusalem and wait till the helper comes. And that, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in other tongues. Everybody heard the gospel in their own dialect. And <clears throat> Peter preached this great sermon. Mind you, Peter, who had denied Jesus, Peter, who had run away with the other disciples, Peter's no longer a coward. Peter is bold, and he preaches a, that great sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2. And part of that great sermon is about tying in with the resurrection of Jesus. This Jesus will be raised, and he will, and he quotes uh, <clears throat> Psalm 110, where it says, the Lord shall sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet and thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. Well, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit, just like Jesus says, when he comes, he's gonna convict of sin. Apparently, 3,000 people were convicted of sin because after Peter preaches that sermon, they go, brethren, it says they were pierced to the heart. Well, who did that in their heart? The Holy Spirit pierced their heart. What shall we do? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus for the salvation of your soul. And 3,000 people were convicted of their sins, repented, and believed in Jesus, all because... Jesus says, it's going to be better when I go away because I will send the, com the comforter. Remember, I pointed this out last week that when Jesus was on the earth, he was the God, well, he's, he's still the God man. But when he walked on the earth, he, was, he had a limitation simply because he was a human. And if he wanted to get from Galilee to Judea, he had to walk. Unlike, mind you, when he was raised from the dead, remember, he could just appear in a room and then he, uh, whenever he wanted in his glorified body. But that's because he's ascended to the Father. But before then, he was limited. Well, in the ascension, he is everywhere present now that he's at the right hand of the Father. So see right there is a, an advantage of the fact that the Holy Spirit has, uh, would do a ministry to us in a special way, and that was because of what Jesus promised. So now one of the things that the, Jesus says that the Spirit will do, and maybe some denominations as well-meaning as they are, you know when the Spirit comes, the Spirit doesn't glorify himself. Jesus says when he comes, he's going to glorify me. That's what he's going to do. 
So a lot of this emphasis on the spirit can be is displaced in a way that it's not really biblical because the spirit does everything so that Jesus gets uh, the glory. So what we see here, we could say this, while, while the reprobate, the unbeliever, cannot see Jesus for who he is, the Holy Spirit does convince men of another thing. Notice what he said, verse 8. He will convince the world not only of sin, but of righteousness. That's another thing the, the Spirit was, is going to do. And <clears throat> he's going to convince men that Jesus Christ was indeed a righteous man. Righteous in the, in the fact that Jesus said, remember on occasions, which one of you is going to convict me of sin? Jesus never, he was perfect. He was in a human nature, but he never sinned. As Hebrew says, he became like us in every respect without sin. And so we see that Jesus is the righteous one. He is the advocate as 1 John 2, 1 says that he is. And then when I told Jess afterwards, when he says Isaiah 53, 11, I said, well, here he goes. He's going to take Isaiah 53 away from me today, but he decided not to. Turn to Isaiah 53, all right? And let's take a look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one. Now, this is all about the the suffering servant. So the righteous one is, is the Messiah. So the servant will justify the many and He will bear their iniquities. That's what he's going to do. So the the Holy Spirit is going to come, magnify Jesus, magnify Jesus in several respects we're going to see in terms of righteousness. We're told in the scriptures that it is through Christ's sacrifice that you and I are made the righteousness of God in him. And one of the great passages that brings this out is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And what that passage says, it says, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we've already seen that the Holy Spirit will convict men of sin, of their guilt, and in other words, that they have fallen short of the standard of a holy God and his law. But here's the thing, a sinner cannot save themselves, not in the scriptures. 
And remember John the Baptist, <coughs> when he was baptizing people in the Jordan, and we have, he sees Jesus coming, and Jesus is going to want John to baptize him. John is recorded in Matthew as saying, Behold, notice what he calls Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And when John when when G, uh, John sees Jesus he says, and he, and he knows that Jesus wants him to bapt, wants John to baptize him, he says, "You're the one who ought to baptize me. I'm not even worthy to unlatch your sandals." And then Jesus says, "No, John, you need to do it. We we need to fulfill all righteousness." What do you mean by that? Well. <clears throat> Theologically, if you know in Matthew what happens shortly, right immediately, right after the baptism, guess who sends Jesus out into the desert? The Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the desert for 40 days and nights to be tempted of the devil. And we, in, in Matthew 4, you can see that the three temptations that, that come that Satan brings against Jesus. Now, why did that happen immediately after the baptism? We know that Jesus, and then what did Jesus mean? We must fulfill all righteousness. And why did Jesus get baptized? He, he wasn't a sinner. Remember, baptism identifies our union with Christ. And you gotta understand who Jesus is came to be, and there's a reason why he was sent to the desert. The book of Romans refers to Jesus as the second Adam. That's an interesting uh, phrase. Romans 5 mentions him, and actually uh, 1 Corinthians 15 does as well. He's the last Adam or the second Adam. Well, what did the first Adam do? He blew it. He blew it for the human race is what he did. If Adam and Eve had not taken of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, they would have inherited, we would all have inherited eternal life. That was a probationary period. But we blew it. Adam blew it. And the Bible says in Romans 5, there are, <clears throat> Adam didn't just blow it for himself. The, the scripture says Adam blew it for the whole human race because he was what we call the old term, the federal head of the human race, meaning he was the representative head of the human race. What that means, all of us were there in the garden with Adam and he was our champion. And our champion blew it. And because he blew it, we inherited not only the guilt of his sin, we inherited the pollution of that sin. And that's called original sin. So Adam blew it. <clears throat> so why is Jesus called the second Adam? Well, he's got to come. And what was his purpose of coming into this world in the first place? Well, the scripture is very clear. The whole purpose, and Jess brought it out, the whole purpose of the incarnation was to save sinners. That's the purpose of the incarnation. <clears throat> it was necessary that for us to be saved, as Jess brought out, 
God had to become a man. Not just possibly, had to become a man. Why? He had, in two ways, he had to do, obey where Adam failed. That means he couldn't have sinned. And that's why the Bible says, remember when they did sacrifices in the Old Testament? That the sacrifice, you went and looked for a goat or a sheep that was what? Without blemish. There was a reason for that because the sacrifice is pointing to Jesus according to the book of Hebrews. So Jesus was the Lamb of God, perfect because he never sinned. But Adam was a real man. And Adam sinned in the flesh. And so the second Adam would have to come and accomplish what the first Adam did. Well, in the temptation, man failed with the first Adam. And so when Jesus went out into the desert, led by the Spirit, guess who he did? Who did he defeat in the desert? He defeated Satan. He defeated him. So he is the second Adam. Now, this righteousness that we, we have, the Holy Spirit says, Jesus says when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict you of righteousness. Now, we're, we've already looked about 2 Corinthians 5.21, but I want you to turn over to Philippians 3, verse 9. And look what Paul says here. And I may be found in him, meaning Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, that kind of righteousness. Now turn over to the book of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Notice that. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And we'll just stop right there. So what we see here, when Jesus goes to the Father after his resurrection and his ascension to be rewarded by his Father, for his obedience, and that's exactly what Philippians 3 or Philippians 2 says. His exaltation was a reward for him being obedient to be, go to the cross on behalf of sinners. So Jesus, when he goes to the Father, whom he told the disciples, I go to my Father, he will send the Holy Spirit to convict men that in Jesus, the righteousness that they could not obtain on their own, 
They can obtain it if they believe in Jesus. And guess who's going to do that work? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to do that work. And that's why if you turn over to Romans 10, look what it says in verse 1 and following. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, talking about the Jews, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As Jess also pointed out this morning, and I phrase it to people, you know, to get into heaven, we have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. Now, here's the thing. On whose <laughs> who's perfection are we talking about? Well, if it's us, we're not going to make it. But you still have to be perfect. But we have to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So when you and I believe, the righteousness of Jesus is the fancy word, imputed or credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. So that Jesus, who is that judge on that final day, and all the sheep, here's what he's going to see. He's going to see his own righteousness on every one of us who are sheep. And then on the left side, don't be offended over you on the left side. <laughs> On the left side, the goats, he's going to say, you need to go into that place prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, why are they going to go? Well, here's the thing. Remember the basis in, in Matthew 25 is, Jesus says to the sheep, uh, <clears throat> when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. The goats is the converse. You didn't do any of that. You should have. You sinned. You don't have my righteousness. So because you don't have my righteousness, off you go to hell. See, even in evangelism, Part of the thing that we have to do to people, and I mentioned this last week, is that we need to knock out at the knees this basic mentality that most people have is that somehow God's going to cut me a break on the day of judgment. I'm trying hard, but after all, I've had people say, well, I'm trying hard, but you know, we're, we're, none of us are perfect. And I said, yeah, I understand, but you want to know what God has to say? God says you better be perfect because if you're not perfect, off you go to hell. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to go off to hell. And quit trying to, <laughs> quit trying to get there by your own works. Just accept Jesus as Lord and Savior 
and you'll get all the righteousness that you need to get into heaven. Well, who's going to convince somebody that they need that righteousness to get into heaven? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to convict men of that righteousness. And so, the Spirit convinces men of their guilt, that they are sinners and in need of a Savior. The Holy Spirit's going to convict men of the righteousness of God. That, look, I'm not going to be able to make it on my own. I'm not righteous, but I need... Here's a technical theological term. They need alien righteousness. Now, it's not some UFO. (laughs) Alien means something foreign to yourself. In other words, it's going to be a righteousness that's not on your own. It's a righteousness that is given to you. So if you were to read a book on systematic theology, you're going to hear them talk about alien righteousness. It's one of the problems with federal vision. They, 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 one of the greatest things about that heretical teaching, they believe in the passive obedience of Christ, that he died for sin, but they do not believe that we need to have Jesus's imputed righteousness given to us. Wow. I mean, you, you've, just, you've just gutted the gospel right there is what you've done. No, you need to have Jesus pay the penalty, but you need to have Jesus give you his righteousness. What they say is, well, we have this union with Christ, and we're, we're in, by union of Christ, we have that. <clears throat> in fact, one of those guys said, one of those Federal Vision guys said, We did not need to have Jesus' 33 years of perfect obedience to the law. What? How could you say such a thing? No, we, we need to have every bit of that righteousness. We need to have an alien righteousness, and that alien righteousness is Jesus' righteousness. So the Holy Spirit has done that. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts men We need that righteousness. Well, there's another thing that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's going to do. What did he say? He will convince you, convince you of judgment. Now, now, and then it says, let let me turn back to John. It says, he will convict the world of judgment concerning, um, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, it's interesting. He says, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Well, we got to understand then how is, well, first of all, who is this ruler of the world that's been judged? Well, Jesus already said a chapter earlier, it's Satan. Satan 
said to be the ruler of this world. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Satan is said to be the god of this world. Just talk about that world system uh, this morning in rebellion against God. What, who, who is the inspiring instigator? And he did mention Ephesians 2 this morning. One where it says, that spirit of disobedience, that spirit of the power of the air, that spirit of disobedience. Men disobey because Satan is energizing them. They're a slave of Satan, the scripture says. And so one of the things you don't necessarily need to turn to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, but it talks about this, this great angel coming out of heaven with a chain. And it says he will bind Satan with a chain for a thousand years so that he will not be able to deceive the nations for a thousand years. Now, that's one of the great places in the scripture for the millennium, because a thousand years is a millennium. So we have to ask, when is this millennium? Well, you can ask this question. When did Jesus bind? Well, it's understood that that great angel is Jesus. When did Jesus bind the ruler of this world? Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to begin at, at verse 10. Now, the context is that he sent out 70 to go preach into the cities of Israel. And he gave them authority to do a lot of things in his name. And picking up at verse 10, he says, But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say... <clears throat> Even the, and even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred... In you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in, their, in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted into heaven. By the way, Capernaum was the, the city of which Jesus operated out of when he was in Galilee. It was his home place of operation, which saw most of the miracles. You'd think that would have changed the citizens of Capernaum, wouldn't you? Oh, but look what he says. Will you, you will be brought down to hell. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who re rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me, meaning the Father. 
So, I want you to turn, let's see. No, okay. So what you see, he says, I'm going to convict the world of judgment because I am taking out, he says, in John, I'm taking out the ruler of this world. I'm judging him. Remember in the scriptures, it says, when the disciples went out to preach, you know what Jesus said about them? I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's an interesting term. How did Satan fall from heaven like lightning through the preaching of the disciples? Because in the preaching of the disciples, what were they supposed to preach? Repentance and faith all of which will not take place without the Spirit, right? And so what we see here, this binding of Satan, I'll just mention this in out of Matthew 12, Jesus is casting out demons in his ministry. And the Pharisees, they said, oh, You're casting out demons by Beelzebul, which was a term for the devil. What was Jesus' response? Oh, I'm casting out demons by Satan? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? (laughs) No. He says, "If if a thief is going to plunder a man's house, what does he have to do? And here's the analogy Jesus is giving. You have to go in and bind up the strong man. In other words, the head of the household, the defender of the house. You got to deal with him. Well, you know, in our modern day vernacular, you got to be sure that the guy doesn't have the guns or whatever to deal with you. No, if you're going to plunder a man's house, you, you got to deal with the strong man in the house. You bind him out, then you can plunder the house. Well, what did, why did Jesus give that analogy? He said, this is what I've done. In casting out demons, I have plundered Satan's house. Because the Bible says that all those who are unbelievers, they are called slaves of Satan to do his will. And we have to be delivered for Satan. No one is a believer in Jesus who is at first delivered from Satan. Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the, no, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the glory of the gospel. Nobody can see, the reason people don't believe, and this will help you in evangelism, you gotta understand People are in a bad shape. They not only are said to be slaves of their own sin, but they're slaves of the devil. That spirit which works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2. They have to be delivered from Satan. And the only one who can deliver you out of Satan's hands 
is God the Holy Spirit is the only one. And so what we see here, and this is why Jesus, when he, Colossians 2 talks about Calvary, it says when Jesus was nailed to the cross, all of those debts, uh, uh, that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, what, what was that? The law of God is what that was. Remember, Jess brought this out again this morning. The law shows us that we're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. All day long, you're guilty. And so when Jesus on the cross, that whole debt of sin was erased. And it says that uh, through through his death, and the scripture there in Colossians says, Jesus publicly displayed his triumph over principalities and powers. That is when it was at Calvary's cross that the prophecy of Genesis 3, 15 came to pass, where it says the seed of, of the evil one, the seed of the serpent, will bruise your heel, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. It was at the cross of Calvary that Jesus crushed Satan's head. And now we know that Satan is still out there. We know that from scripture. Peter says he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he's bound. When did Jesus bind Satan? during his earthly ministry. And what was the reason Revelation 20 says he was bound? So that Satan would no longer deceive the nations. Do you know why that their missions has the success that it does today? It's because Satan is bound. Because we are living in the millennium right now. It's because Satan is bound. And every time the gospel is preached, Men and women are delivered out of the bondage of Satan. And, and so what we see here is that, that the Holy Spirit is doing this. I will have you turn to, to Acts chapter 17 as we bring this to a close here. Now, the context here, let me just mention this. Paul's come to Athens. He's gone to the Areopagus and he's gone to where people used to gather the philosophers to have fun debating one another's philosophy. And there specifically, you had the Stoic philosophers and the Epicureans. Now, here's what both of these, they were different philosophies, but they did have this one thing in common. Neither of them believed a life after death. So they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, guess what? This preacher, Paul, comes through preaching Jesus raised from the dead. And you know what they called him? They called him an idle babbler, which means 
you're a pseudo, a pseudo philosopher. <laughs> Imagine telling these philosophers Jesus raised from the dead and they didn't believe that people rose from the dead. Now, I've always used this in apologetics. Just because someone, when you're talking to them, they may tell you, well, I just don't believe that. I don't believe what you're telling me. To which we should lovingly respond and say, you know what? It doesn't matter what you believe. (laughs) Because what matters is reality. And I'm fixing to tell you reality. You may not believe in this Jesus, and you may not believe this Jesus rose from the dead. Well, here's what God says, and, and here's what Paul said to these philosophers and the others, you know, may not have been the philosophers, but citizens of Athens. Take a look at verse 30 through 32. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Well, why should they repent? Well, here's the reason why. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, and they must have got a kick out of this, by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. (laughs) You idiot. Okay. But others said, you know, that's intriguing. We'll hear you another day. And then, 34, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So those are your, those are your three responses. You're going to got those who are going to mock you. There are going to be those that say, you know, I never really heard of that before, and I'm going to think about this. And then you're going to have some that, guess what? The Holy Spirit will open their heart. Because Jesus says, you... you you can't follow me unless you hear me. Well, how are you going to hear him unless your heart's been changed? You, and the only one who can do that is the Holy Spirit. But here's another thing about how the Holy Spirit's going to convict men of judgment. Most people that you're going to find still, especially in our culture, Though they may not be Christians and say, I'm not a Christian, they do have a sense of guilt before God. And that's why this is a topic for a whole other day. That's why Hebrew says there is a certain fear of judgment. In fact, that the text that Jess, well, just turn over to Hebrews 2 for a moment. Hebrews 2, 14 and following. Hebrews 2, 14 and following. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, 
that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. A lot of men, even non-Christians, they do have a fear of death. I'll never forget, it was Joe Moorcraft who said, in Texas, he heard of a man who was so afraid of dying, at night he would put toothpicks in his eyelids so he wouldn't fall asleep. That's a great story. Afraid of dying. Afraid of judgment. And the Holy Spirit, here's the thing. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. But fear him who can kill both the body and the soul in hell. And Jesus also said in Mark 9, 47, 48, he says, hey, if your eye causes you to stumble, then pluck your eye out for it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have both eyes and to be cast into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Now, why would Jesus say these things but to fear judgment? There ought to be a healthy fear. And part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring a conviction of judgment. You know what? I am guilty. I am a sinner. And what they're saying about me, if that's true, then I need to do something about this. I need to repent. In fact, you know, there's a tower that fell on some men at Siloam. And they said to Jesus, did that, were those people more sinners than others? Because that tower just happened to fall on them and they were at the bat, wrong place at the wrong time? Jesus says, no. He says, but I will tell you this, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. <laughs> so there's your ministry. Now do you see why Jesus says it's better for you that I go away? Because when I go away, I will send you this spirit who will convict you of sin. He will convict you where righteousness is and he will convict you of judgment and what you need to do about it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit's ministry and send us forth rejoicing that we don't have to fear any of this because we are sons and daughters of the living God. We praise you for Jesus' sake, amen.